story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down. And I'd like to take a minute, just sit right there. I'll tell you how I became the prince of a town called Bel Air. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And as you've come to know, we tell stories about everything here on this show, from history to the arts, sports, and your stories, too. That's the hour in Our American Stories, and we'd love to hear from you. Tell us your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for our newsletter while you're there, and we'll hit you with our best four or five stories every week. And you're listening to the theme song to The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, the highly successful television sitcom that ran from 1990 to 1996 and is on perpetually on cable. People always say sometimes you have to hit rock bottom before you make it to the top. Things were no different for rapper-turned-actor Will Smith, and he almost missed his opportunity to be a part of a groundbreaking show. The story we're about to listen to is all about how Will Smith's life got flipped and turned upside down. We'd like to take a minute, just sit right there. Here's Will Smith to tell us how he became the star of the hit TV show called The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Before I was getting in trouble with Uncle Phil, I was in trouble with Uncle Sam. Me and Jeff had come out with our smash hit. Parents just don't understand. We made a bunch of money. We won a Grammy. Album was triple platinum. I had motorcycles and cars. I called the Gucci store in Atlanta, and I was like, Hey, will y'all close it down if I bring my friends? And I'm smiling, but that's stupid. We released our next album, and it was like a flop. It was a tragedy. It went like double plastic. I had spent most of my money, like all of it. I spent all my money. And I didn't forget, but I didn't pay the IRS. In my mind, I mean, I wasn't like trying to avoid paying taxes. I was just like, oh, damn, they need their money. The IRS took all, took all of that stuff. So I was like, broke, broke, broke. Being famous and broke is a shitty combination. Cause you're still famous and people recognize you, but they recognize you while you sitting next to them on the bus. And the stuff they ask you to sign on a bus, you know, like, oh, can you sign my baby? That's a Sharpie. I, I probably shouldn't just write on the baby with that. Oh, you too big to sign my baby. Well, no, nah, I mean, you know, so I signed it. So I was like laying around and my girlfriend was like, Dude, we're not doing this. Like, you're not just going to be laying around this house all day. You're going to go do something. And I was like, what? What am I supposed to do? Go where people is is doing it. Wh- where are people doing it? Go to the Arsenio Hall show. Just go stand around at the Arsenio Hall show. Yes. That's stupid. Bring it up. So I went to the Arsenio Hall show, and I met a dude named Benny Medina. Benny Medina is the real-life Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, except he actually went from Watts to Beverly Hills. Same basic concept, way shorter distance. I meet Benny, and he pitches me the idea for this show, and I'm like, you know, I'm I'm not an actor. I'm like, cool. And he says, hey, you know, I want you to meet Quincy Jones. Quincy Jones is producing with me. So I find myself at Quincy's, and there's actors and artists and celebrities and politicians. like everybody's at Quincy's house. It's like the whiz without the costumes. So Benny walks me in and introduced me to Quincy. I'm like, hey Q, what's up, man? He said, hey man, you know, I saw your music videos. I love, I love what you're doing. I love what you're doing. Tell me your rap name again. They call me the Fresh Prince. All right, good. That's what we're gonna call the show. 
and he handed me a screenplay for a failed Morris Day pilot. Like, I don't have the time. So, I need you to do this. I need you to go ahead, take a few minutes, take 10 minutes, study the script, and I'm gonna clear all the stuff out the living room, and we're gonna have everybody sit down in the living room, we're gonna do an audition. He had movers that could reset his furniture. I was like, this dude is real. So it goes out, tells everybody, come on, come on, come on. And I was like, hey Q, hold up, man, hold up. I'm not ready to do no audition. And he's like, oh, all right, all right. All right. Uh, well, what you need? Tell me what you need. Just set the meeting for a week and I could do it. He said, yeah, yeah, you know, Brandon Tartikoff, the head of NBC, is out there. I'll get him to schedule for next week. And then you know what's gonna happen? Something gonna come up and then he's gonna have to reschedule. Oh, yeah, yeah, so three, so three weeks from now, Q, we can do it three weeks from now. I said, yeah, 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 three weeks from now be good. Or you could take 10 minutes right now and you can change your life forever. I was like, yes, give me 10 minutes. I said yes, and I let it rip. And I got to the end, and everybody is clapping. Quincy looks at Brandon Tartikoff, the head of NBC. Did you like it? And Brandon said, yeah, yeah, I liked it, Quincy. He says, no, did you like it? And he's like, yeah, I liked it. He's like, good, you're his lawyer. Draw me up something right now. Damn, Quincy ordering other people lawyers around. <laughs> like, that's his lawyer, Quincy, leave that man alone. And Quincy turned to me, and he was like, hey, Will, you got a lawyer? Quincy, I'm broke. If I had a lawyer taking 5%, he'd owe me money right now. He was like, all right, and he turned to his assistant. He was like, get Will a lawyer. Quincy had been drinking. You know, it's probably obvious from the story, but he had been tasting. He, he had wet his beak a little bit that night. Yeah, so the lawyers go out in the limo and they're drawing up the first deal for the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Quincy is like popping up at the window. No paralysis, do analysis. No paralysis, do analysis! <laughs> like, how did he make Thriller like this? So we got the lawyers draw up something. Ken Hertz looked it over for me, Brandon Tartikoff, and we took a picture and we signed the, the, the basic deal for the Fresh Prince. And three months later, we were shooting the pilot. And that's the story of how I became the Prince of Bel-Air. So the moral of the story is, Always say yes, and I guess, listen to your girlfriend. <laughs>And it doesn't get better than that, folks. And that's an entrepreneur's story right there. And that's what we do here. I mean, the arts show business, the business part. By the way, go to ouramericannetwork.org, type in Sly Stallone, because you hear the same story from Stallone at that key moment in his life when he had this script. And if you remember, Stallone kept, he, well, they wanted to buy the script from him. And they kept saying 50000 then 100000 then 200000 And Stallone's like, man, that was more money than I was ever going to see in my whole life. But remember what he said. He said, my goodness, if that's a big hit and I'm not in it, I'm going to jump off a bridge. And so he just said, no, I'm not selling it. I got to be in the movie. And that business decision he made changed his life. The decision Will Smith made changed his. And thank goodness he had a great advocate, a great businessman. Quincy Jones wasn't just a musician, folks. And Benny Medina, well, he's the real thing. And look up his name. What a story there. We should do that one, too. This is Lee Habib, Will Smith's story, here on Our American Stories. Here it is, a clue slightly transformed. Just a bit of a break from the norm. Just a little something to break the monotony of all that hardcore dance that has gotten to be a little bit out of control. It's cool to dance, but what about a groove that soothes and moves romance?
This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for one of our favorite regular features, the Burning Question column with Heidi Mitchell. And you can see that in the Wall Street Journal. We love it because, well, it's just damn interesting. And this week's question, why are human ears shaped that way? Heidi, thanks again, as always, for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. And before we get into things, Heidi, we love to keep progress of your move into Chicago. Uh, You've moved from Brooklyn (laughs) to Chicago, and other than a great pizza crisis, which I know you're suffering from, because they actually consider that deep dish stuff pizza. But that's another thing. That's maybe another show. How how are things? I'm liking those hot dogs, the char dogs. Oh, yeah. With all the stuff on them. Anyway, now I'm making myself hungry. Oh, no, no, Um, no doubt. Someone told me don't don't become a Cubs fan, even though it's so hard right now not to be a Cubs fan. Yeah, that's true. Hey, hey, look, you've come at a good time, an auspicious time. I know. I did. I brought good weather, and I brought the Cubs to the World Series. We'll see. Well, excellent. We'll we'll keep tracking that because, you know, Americans move (laughs) a lot, and we are probably, as a people— the most itinerant, prosperous country in the world. I don't think. I wonder Finns, if that's true. That uh, might be true. Maybe that should be a burning question, Heidi. Why do we move so much? Why, do we Why move can't we so sit much? still? Yeah. Who knows? It's meta ADHD. <laughs> I think it could be. Maybe the whole country is. Let's talk about <laughs> ears, Heidi. What on earth made you and the crew over there at the Wall Street Journal think this one up? Well, I think maybe it's the outgoing president. And his very large ears had us all thinking about. He does have some big large. ears. Not he that there's anything have. wrong with that. I'm going to pull a Seinfeld ear. Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. It's on the list, and it came up now. And uh, I think that maybe we're all, like, slightly p- pining for the days when, you know, it was politics as usual, not politics as reality show yeah that's true you know one day i'll never forget this i was at an airport at jfk our acting teacher had assigned us to just watch couples greet each other uh, who'd not seen each other in a while and that we could tell the nature of the relationship by the greeting and it was fascinating well what we started fixating on was ears and i don't know why but they became very funny things to start watching because they really are weird looking ears they are weird looking and if you think as we're talking if you touch the top of your ear i'm not in front of a mirror but i have these weird ears that don't curl all the way at the top and they have it looks like a dog took a bite out of them or something they have all these little ridges at the top so i had asked the doctor about that um and he just said you know basically you would if you if you slap someone else's ears on your face you would hear totally different well because you're just used, everyone has their own um, way of hearing, and they you hear differently if you have different ears slapped to your face, which I'm sure there's been ear transplants done, and maybe it was really weird. So, do, so, so do the shape and size of ears make us hear better or worse? Well, they we it doesn't really. It's not quite like that. It's more like. You're, you're only born with one pair, and so that's just how you hear. And so it's, not, it's already optimized for you, for everyone. You get used to it. So, so he was saying if you, know, if you had this ear transplant, you would, it would just be super weird, and it would take time to get used to it because we each have our own um, sound signature that we hear. So if I took your ears, your huge, I'm sure, ears, and slapped them onto my tiny head, um, <clears throat> it would be weird because I'm just used to what I've got. Right, right. And by the way, I love the part of your job, Heidi, where you take what's seemingly a silly question or just an odd question, but you run it down and you go chase the best experts in the field. And, <laughs> and this one happens to be a guy named Dr. Rickett. 
Tell us about oh Dr. Rickett. This is the best guy. I mean, it, w- it was really weird because I had such a hard time finding somebody. Um, and it ended up, we, I ended up with a, a guy who specializes in hearing aids. So he, he specializes in, in optimizing, um, creating these hearing aids. And so he's at Vanderbilt University. And he was a great interview. He had lots of fun with this. But if you scrolled, if you're online and you look at the comments, if you scroll down, it just, there's 72 comments, and it devolved into this evolution <laughs> crisis at the bottom of the page. So, you know, they say, don't read your reviews. I shouldn't read my comments. <laughs> no, no, you but shouldn't. But this guy, Dr. Ricketts, yeah, he's great. He was really um, very clear and um, had a good sense of humor as well, which is always a so, prerequisite for so somebody. So from the column, you wrote, the shape of the ear has a big effect on how one hears. Some animals, it turns out, have rotating ears. Humans don't need ear functions with up-down precision hearing, quote, since we're not likely to be attacked from above or carried off by a bird. Fascinating. Like, like I said, he has a good sense of humor. Oh, my goodness. Yes, I think if you're, if you're like a, an owl, your ears kind of go around, or there are other um, rodents that can do that because they could be you know, dragged off by some flying crazy thing, like an owl. Um, right. They can be dragged off. The, but since we're so high up on the food chain and we're so big, we don't have to have that kind of precise hearing like a dog hears at night and all those things that um, that we don't we don't really have to have such precise hearing. So you know we've evolved to have ears that do the best job that they can do, and and they they don't either. They hear up and down and know what's coming from above. You can kind of feel it. But we do have the, the positioning of the ears on either side of our head. You know, if you can imagine that, um, if you put a point in between them, you know, so you can kind of geolocate from the 3D of your ears. Um, try, you can triangulate, right, where that, where that is coming from. So we are able to do that by the very fact that our two ears are on either side of our head. Yeah. And what are the different parts of the ear, Heidi? And do they all have a different purpose? So they do. So if you start with the outside, the, the pinna is what is you see is what you see on the outside of your head, and that is kind of like a funnel. Um, it's kind of like a horn, and it sort it points slightly forward. If you can touch your ears and see how they kind of like point forward, and so that's gathering more sound from the front. And then what happens from behind is that it's sort it's called shadowing, and so the sounds behind you are sort of like muffled. So you're more you're more closely hearing the person who you're facing, um, which helps in, in lots of situations yeah. to be able to focus in on the person in front of you, right, and not let all the ambient noise around you get in the way. If your ears were flat against your head, like maybe you had them taped down, you might have a harder time <laughs> telling right, right. who's talking to you and focusing on the person. Right. And then and then inside, um, there's a whole bunch of different things happening um, inside, um, including, um, you know, your ear canal, which sort of it takes that horn and funnels the, the sound down, and it acts as an amplifier. But it's still in the two to four thousand hertz range, which is so you can hear sibilants and vowel sounds. And but it's not it's not a really high range, a wide range like a lot of animals have. And then at the end of that canal, um, where all your um, your earwax is lodged, um, is this sort of soft, the eardrum, which is called the tympanic membrane, and it's super sensitive to sound. Um, and then there's other stuff behind that that then signals signals your brain. And by the way, the, the earlobe we noted here has no other function but then this. As we men are shaving and we hit it, it's there to bleed profusely oh. for the next three days. I think that's the only purpose an earlobe serves. 
Well, you can read the comments and find lots of other purposes for your earlobe. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. By the but way, Dr. Rick, say, Dr. Yeah. Rick had said this, the ear is self-cleaning, a self-cleaning, self-oiling machine, so don't shove Q-tips in there. That was going to be my next question. What was, what, was that, what was that advice up to? Why did he say that? I think most of us do <laughs> shove Q-tips in there. Not only do most of us, but he even does. Um, it just feels so good. I don't know why, but I think what you're doing is you're, you're, you're compacting all that wax that's meant to be in there. So you're, you, have, you have little tiny hairs and you have wax and that's supposed to collect all this dirt and stuff that's coming in and then it's supposed to naturally expel it itself. I guess when you shower, when it gets wet, it will, it will expel occasionally that, that You'll see sometimes, um, this is gross, but you'll see some little bits of wax that come out. So when there's like a lot of dirt, it'll expel itself. So you're not really supposed to stick anything in there. It's really a well-oiled machine that does its job pretty well. Um, however, Johnson & Johnson invented the Q-tip, and so many of us are addicted to this guilty pleasure. I clean my ears every morning and my daughter will come to me and she'll ask me to clean her ears out. And she's only seven. I do too. And I love it. And maybe one day we'll clear our ears together, Heidi. I mean, you know, whatever, oh, that'd be a really, no, well, by the way, we'll do that on the air one day, Heidi. Yeah, that'd yeah, be yeah, really yeah, weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would be weird. Fortunately, it's, uh, it's, you can't see us. <laughs> so that, thank goodness. And by the way, cleaning, cl- cleaning your ear can actually dampen your hearing. Dr. Ricketts told us. Yeah, so you can, what you're doing is you're, most of us, like, you're pushing that wax further in. So unless you're just like doing a gentle circle around the kind of the outer rim, usually people are jamming it into their ear. So you're basically compacting that ear wax. <clears throat> and I know for a personal example, my brother was having some weird um, hearing issues. He went to the doctor. The doctor did some suctioning thing and got this huge chunk of wax no, out of his gross. ear. Uh huh. <laughs> and he had, it's totally gross. And he had just been jamming that wax in there for years. And wow. he pulled it out and he could hear like a charm. You hear that, everybody? So you learn stuff right here on Our American <laughs> Stories. Watch out with the Q tips. It could be dangerous. Heidi, thanks as always for joining us. And we'll keep talking about Chicago. And hey, try the Big Al's uh, meat sandwich and beef sandwich. There's nothing better. Again, Heidi Mitchell from the Wall Street Journal. The burning question. Why are human ears shaped that way? This is Our American Stories. Get that finger out of your ear. You don't know where that finger's been. our American stories and it's time for our rule of law series with our own Alex Cortez who brings us today's feature on the story of the Constitution and once again with Hillsdale College President Dr. Larry Arne as our guide. On July 4, 1776, the American colonies declared their independence from Great Britain which practically meant They were declaring war. If you imagine George Washington with his army in 1777, say, pick a year, 
<laughs> pick any year in the American Revolution, and most of it was bad for him. Imagine him. He's never run a big army before. They're making war on the most powerful government on earth. They don't know how. There's nobody really with any experience to fight these British guys who know how to run an army, and a lot of them are very talented people. They got wealth, they got establishment, they're old. And yet, they won. And that they'd have yet another terrifying task ahead of them. Perhaps a more daunting task if you could believe it. Creating a country, which meant to them creating a constitution. Well, it's, of course, it's nobody's claiming it's perfect. It's not a perfect document. It's just the best thing of its kind ever. Their constitution would create a limited set of powers given to the federal government and a bill of rights that would ensure that the natural rights of the people could never be violated. In essence, their constitution, led in drafting by James Madison, would establish the rules of the road in America, the rule of law that would both apply to and can be created by all equally. Madison says, we're not going to do it in the old way. In the old way, here's what you would do. Aristotle writes that the city is made up of the one and the few and the many. And the one is a monarch, maybe. And the few are the aristocrats, maybe. And the many are the democracy, the people. And the fundamental conflict in society, he says, is between the many poor and the few rich. And so the way you make a good government, according to classical political philosophy, is to mix up the powers. Have an aristocratic house that has some power, and have a democratic house that has some power, and have a king who has some power, and then they cancel each other out. And you have to understand that the people who made the American Revolution had read these old books and they simply refused to place in the American Constitution any power to any privileged class by birth or other station. Madison writes, it is essential to a Republican government that it be derived from the great body of the society, not from an inconsiderable proportion or a favored class. Otherwise, a handful of tyrannical nobles exercising their oppressions might aspire to the rank of Republican and call themselves that. In other words, we are not going to do what was done before. In fact, to some extent, by the way, done in the English constitutional monarchy. We're not going to pick out some people and call them special and give them special power. But if you think for a minute, that makes the problem worse. Because now, you're going to have a majority, and that is to say, me, on a good day, is not a bad fellow. And me, on a bad day, is pretty likely to do something wrong. And so, how are you going to give all of the power to the people and keep them from abusing it? And ironically enough, their answer, after expelling distant British rulers, was to create distance. Madison in the 63rd Federalist says that 
Our government is unique because it is the first one in which the sovereign people are excluded entirely from making the operations of the government. What I mean by sovereign is being the source of political authority. In the United States of America, the people are sovereign. We act under our equal and natural right to consent to the government over us. Now, who was sovereign in England? The answer to that is the king in parliament was sovereign. And that meant that the king working through the parliament was the source of British law. And there was a constitution, and he wasn't to violate it, and it was unwritten, but it meant something. But you couldn't say that the ultimate tribunal, Abraham Lincoln liked to call the people as they are organized under the Constitution, the highest tribunal. You couldn't say that that was the people in England. And if the king and the parliament were sovereign together, then they were the executive and the legislative branches. And if you think about that for a minute, that means that when the sovereign actually sits down to make a law, that being the highest authority in the land, the sovereign can do whatever it wants. And in our country, that never happens. Compare it to Athens. The way it worked in Athens was the free citizens, who were a minority of all the citizens, less than a third, they all had the power to vote. They would gather in the amphitheater on the Parthenon, and they would have an assembly, and they would vote. But they were forever turbulent, right? Because once they got in the room there, they'd have a big argument, and they could vote just about whatever they wanted to, because they were the sovereign and they were right there meeting at that moment. And they were forever doing crazy things like uh, sending off an expedition by sea to go conquer some colony. And then the next week, they'd hear a different speech and they'd change their mind and they'd send off another group to go stop the first group. Very changeable, right? But also unlimited because the sovereign was meeting to run the government. And in our country, the majority gets that the majority of our representatives in Congress else will be in order except they never just get to sit down and do it because think what happens aren't you frustrated by politics sometimes when I was younger especially I'd be given to think you know if I could just have a week <laughs> to fix this you know stupid what they're doing you know and you custom and carry on but in our country, you don't get to do it. And think what gets checked by that. Because first of all, all of the people who are in the government know that the ultimate authority is out there watching them. And they can chuck them out. Isn't that good? That means they got a fear, right? Where's the king when he met? You know, what he kept saying back to the colonies is, I'm the king as was my father before me and as will be my son after me. And it doesn't make any difference what you think about that. Nobody gets to say that. And so the government is checked. Consent, except now put in representation. They work for us. But the second thing that is checked is us. Because we can't do anything right now, today. Isn't that interesting? That means that, you know, 
almost every American, if you just look at the polls, would like to make very large changes to the government. It's not true that they all want to change it in the same direction, but they can't really do anything right now. It takes years to do anything. And what's that about? It just means that we have to wait for elections to act, but think for a minute, also in between the elections, we're encouraged to talk. The original scheme was you can talk all the time, you're able to act only certain times, which if you think about it, kind of boils down to the idea, think before you act, talk it through. And when we come back, more from Dr. Larry Orn, the story of the Constitution of the United States. It doesn't get better than this, folks. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of the U.S. Constitution and with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. And here he is talking about the benefits of our representative government that the Constitution created. The second thing that happens because of representation is that things can get bigger. You know, if you've got the political system of Athens and the people have to get together in the legislature and vote, it means they can't live very far away from each other. Also, by the way, it means they can't vote very often because they got to be making a living. What are they going to do? All sit in the legislature all the time. So it becomes possible for the country to get bigger if it's a representative country. And you know, there was a debate at the time of the revolution about how big it should be. But the people who won the argument about the Constitution, the Federalist Party, they argued very well that the states themselves were already pretty big. They were thinking of a big country, and you can have a big country, and if you have a big country, there'll be, Madison makes this point, a lot of interests. They'll multiply. There'll be more than one or two. There'll be more than a hundred. There'll be more than a thousand. And because of that, it'll be harder for any one of them to dominate. And you think they're just encouraging us by this mechanism of bigness and representation for us to have a whole bunch of factions and them all to cancel each other out. And that's partly true. But it's not the whole story. Because Madison also says, when you're debating over a big expanse, like if uh, you and your four friends that you've had all your life get together and you've had a conflict with another three friends or even enemies and they're not there, and you get to talking about them and it's just you, you know, probably you'll go pretty far and say some stuff that's more than what you mean. But if you have to announce it out in public to a whole bunch of people you don't know, you might be more careful. Madison writes in the 10th Federalist where he's writing about how you can multiply the interest and it'll be hard for any one of them to dominate. He also says, where there is a consciousness of unjust or dishonorable purposes, communication is always checked by distrust in proportion to the number whose concurrence is necessary. In other words, if you've got to try to persuade a lot of people, you're going to be careful what you say. And that's going to make the public discourse better. 
The plan of the Constitution is drawing on the various aspects of human nature. Wish for honesty, understanding that we have a common connection with each other, and each of us will do better if we all do better. They're trying to find a way to draw on all of those things to propagate for the first time in history, for a long time, a system of self-government. And that necessarily means that this representative system must also account for that other little aspect of human nature called self-interest. Madison writes that these people are going to get elected to these jobs and they're ambitious and they're going to want to take over as much of the government as they can and they're going to have to work with the others and the others are ambitious too and they're going to be in a kind of a struggle that's going to tend to bring them together. That, too, advance their own ambitions, they have to pass legislation. And to pass legislation, they have to work with these others who have their own ambitions. Ambition, he writes, must be made to counteract ambition. It may be a reflection on human nature that such devices should be necessary to control the abuses of the government. But what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external or internal controls on the government would be needed. And that, it seems to me, is a sign of what they're after here, which is not just the lowest common denominator with these things. It is that, by the way. It is that, too. Self-interest. If I'll read you something from Abraham Lincoln, and, and I, I want you to understand that the action of self-interest can be a very powerful force for good. Lincoln is arguing against slavery once, and he says, uh, Free labor argues that as the author of man, that's capitalized author, he means God, the author of man makes every individual with one head and one pair of hands it was probably intended that the head and the hand should cooperate as friends, and that that particular head should direct and control that particular pair of hands. As each man has one mouth to be fed and one pair of hands to furnish food, it was probably intended that that particular pair of hands should feed that particular mouth, that each head is the natural guardian, director, and protector of the hands and mouth inseparably connected with it, and that being so, every head should be cultivated and improved by whatever will add to its capacity for performing its charge. Now that's an interesting point, right? Because in the first part of that quote, what he means to say is, the best person to feed me if I'm hungry is me, right? But the second thing he says is, we're gonna to try to build a society where everybody gets a chance to do that. A chance to pursue their self-interest only restricted by the rule of law, a few basic laws to ensure that we don't harm one another as we go about pursuing our own self-interest. And as we do so, we will coincidentally be helping each other more so than any other system in human history. The butcher, in seeking to take care of himself or his family, makes the best use of his labor providing meat for folks like bakers, and with his reward, uses it to purchase things that he's not so good at, such as the labor of the baker, 
which enables the baker to buy his meat or a car to get to work faster and bake more. In Adam Smith's famous example, minus the car, that wasn't around then. It took decades more of self-interest to get there. We talked a lot about the self now, and a limited government lets the self go about its day. But at the same time, you better watch out. It ain't no limp government. The government of the United States is the government that has won the two greatest wars in human history. And if you count the Civil War, also one of them, let's say three of the biggest five ever. It can act, but it is encouraged to be deliberative while it acts. In conclusion, two things that Dr. Arne believes we must watch out for as we live in the legacy of the Constitution. The first, he shows through a story of him being a new and naive university president and at one of the only places that refuses to take the federal government's money. Young and green and stupid. And I thought, uh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to read Title IV of the Higher Education Act. Because that's the thing that we're giving up several million dollars a year not to have to abide by. I'd like to know what I get for not having the money. And so I called our lawyer. We, I don't think we still have him. I, I hope not. But uh, <laughs> for years and years, we kept a lobbyist in town whose job was to keep the government from giving us any money. It cost 30 or 40 grand a year to, get, to make that happen. And I called him up and I said, uh, you know, I want you to send me Title IV of the Higher Education Act if that is, in fact, the part that we are escaping by not taking all this dough. And he said, no use. No use in my sending it. And I said, why not? And he said, well, you won't be able to read it. And I said, uh, well, you know, I'm a reasonably intelligent man. Maybe I can read it. What are you, a lawyer? And, and he said, no, I said, I can't read it either. We keep a specialist to read it. And she's actually the only person I ever met who can read it. <laughs> now, Madison says that if the laws are so voluminous or changeable that you can't read them, then it doesn't matter if they're made by the right process. That there really can't be a rule of law if you can't reasonably understand the law. Dr. Arn couldn't understand them, and how many Americans have time to read a healthcare law that's over 2,700 pages? Or how about our representatives who passed it? It's believed that not a single one of them read the entirety of this law that they made. When it was challenged in the Supreme Court, justices with very different judicial philosophies were quite upset when it was suggested to them that they go through the whole law and decide which parts were constitutional. Justice Stephen Breyer said, so you propose that we spend a year reading all this? And the late Justice Scalia erupted, of course, with what happened to the Eighth Amendment. That's the one prohibiting cruel and unusual punishment. Now, here's the second thing we should watch out for, according to Dr. Arne. The government is so large now. And, you know, there's just thousands of things going on right this minute. 
you know, it's, we're probably worse governed now significantly than we were when this interview started. It's, how can you keep up with it? And that means that when it's so big, and so big in relation to the rest of the society, I think the gross domestic product of the United States is 15 trillion, and I think state, local, and federal spending is 6.7 trillion. Half, I think, would be seven and a half trillion. So we're 800 billion away. If it gets past that seven and a half, it just means in money terms, the government is larger than the rest of the society. How can the rest of the society watch it? And there you have it, Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. We're continuing our Rule of Law series, the Magna Carta, the Declaration of Independence. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear the Rule of Law series and all that we do. This is Our American Stories. Changed his clothes and shined his boots and combed his dark hair down. And his mother cried as he walked out. Don't take your guns to town, son. Leave your guns at home, Bill. Don't take your guns to town. This is Our American Stories. It's been called the peacemaker, the equalizer, the gun that won the West, Colt. The name is legendary. The gun an historic American icon. The Colt revolver helped tame the frontiers, win wars, and spark a revolution in American manufacturing. There's an old West adage that goes something like this, quote, God created man, Abe Lincoln freed them, but Sam Colt made them equal. Samuel Colt became America's first industrial tycoon, and his faithful wife, Elizabeth, proved herself to be no less extraordinary, making Sam Colt's legend bigger than ever and his empire her own. Phil Anschutz writes in Out Where the West Begins, quote, Samuel Colt's life was the American story written in capital letters. Let's take a listen to that story. Samuel Colt is born July 19, 1814 in Hartford, Connecticut. His first five years of life are spent in privilege because of his father's business success. But from the age of six to 14, Samuel Colt loses his mother and sister to tuberculosis, and then loses a brother and another sister to suicide. At 11, he's indentured to a farmer. Colt begins reading from the Compendium of Knowledge, a scientific encyclopedia containing biographies of famous inventors. He gains knowledge of practical chemistry and becomes obsessed over fireworks and underwater explosives. Then, after one of his fireworks experiments sets his school ablaze, he's expelled. Here's William Hosley, author of Colt, The Making of an American Legend. Sam Colt came from a kind of difficult background. His mother died when he was seven. He didn't take to his formal studies but he liked taking things apart and putting them back together again. He also liked explosives. He was kind of a prankster, and it got him in a lot of trouble. (laughs) 
After his expulsion, Colt's father enlists his troublesome 16-year-old boy as a seaman on a ship. You watch your back, but you be respectful. You understand me? That will be sailing halfway around the world to Calcutta, India. Well, here he is. Nice strong worker, just like I told you. His father hopes that the journey will teach his son responsibility and that he will learn a trade as a seaman. But instead, the trip fills Samuel Colt with another idea. Colt is fascinated by guns and believes there's a way to make them better. It's the early 19th century. Battles are fought with sabers and single-shot muskets. Here's Ashley Lubinsky, curator at the Cody Firearms Museum in Cody, Wyoming, explaining the limited and cumbersome nature of guns at the time. You had to load it from the top of the gun, and you took a whole cartridge, which was powder, the projectile, and paper, and you would end up putting it down the barrel with a rod. So loading single shotguns weren't horribly efficient. It would take you about a minute or so to load three shots if you were really good. Colt has a revolutionary idea inspired by the giant steering wheel on his ship. He sees that the mechanisms that are used to uh, steer and control these ships had ratchets. And when they rotated the wheel, that it would cock and that these ratchets would hold it in place. Like the ship's wheel with axles, spokes, a barrel, and handles, Colt notices that regardless of which way the ship's wheel spins, each spoke always came in direct line with a clutch that could be set to hold it. Colt envisions a firearm with a cylinder that can turn after each shot and lock and then be fired multiple times. While on board the ship, Colt carves a wooden prototype of a revolving cylinder mechanism out of scrap wood. This is the beginning of the revolver. When Colt returns to America, he's a young man determined to turn his vision into a reality. Colt is a complex man who learns self-promotion. At an early age, the young entrepreneur developed a hustler streak. From 1832 to 1836, Colt travels throughout America as Dr. Colt, spelled C-O-U-L-T, as the playbills read, giving demonstrations of the newly discovered nitrous oxide, or laughing gas. In Out Where the West Begins, Phil Anschutz adds some color. Quote, Clad in a fashionable coat and top hat and surrounded by smoking beakers, wax demons, mummies, and exploding fireworks, Colt persuaded spectators to sniff a bag coated with nitrous oxide. Sam guaranteed his audience a good half hour's laugh at the resulting spectacle. Colt's mix of salesmanship with showmanship is on par with the likes of P.T. Barnum. While touring the country, Colt goes looking for investors interested in his revolver. Go on. Take a shot. How about another? A new revolver? Works the same way. It always keeps you loaded. This is going to revolutionize the world. 
He is the consummate salesman. When Sam Cole would come to you and ask for money, he's so over the top and he's such a unique personality, it's gonna completely win over whoever he's asking. With the help of wealthy New Jersey relatives and friends, Colt raises $230,000, the equivalent of over $6 million today, and begins manufacturing his revolver. So, what do you think? Am I onto something? And when we come back, more on the life of Samuel Colt and the birth of the revolver. This is Our American Stories. our American stories and we continue with the remarkable story of Samuel Colt and the birth of the revolver. So what do you think? Am I onto something? There were bugs at first. You don't want any chance that if you pull the trigger on a revolver, more than one bullet's gonna go off at the same time, or even blow up the cylinder. Colt improves his design, and in 1836 is awarded a patent to a 28 caliber, five-shot repeating firearm with a revolving cylinder. It's called the Colt Patterson, and it's like nothing the firearms industry has ever seen. Colt is 23 years old. But Colt's new revolver is proving a tough sell. Lawmen and military are not willing to take a chance on such a new and untested design. In 1842, after six years and a production run of 5,000 pistols and rifles, Colt declares bankruptcy and liquidates his assets. But 2,000 miles southwest in the new state of Texas, the Colt revolver is about to be put to the test. Here's Dr. Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. Sam Colt's first large sale of his revolver went not to the U.S. Army, which rejected the gun outright, but to the Texas Navy. But plagued by lack of funding and political battles, the Texas Navy nearly ceased to exist by 1844, and its Colt's revolvers then went to the Texas Rangers. The Rangers' first use of the revolvers came in the Battle of Walker's Creek in June 1844. Jack Hayes and 15 of his Rangers were out scouting for Comanche Raiders when the Comanche discovered them. The numbers were to the Comanche liking. Chief Yellow Wolf led more than 70 Comanche warriors. What Yellow Wolf 
And the other Comanche didn't count on was the Colt Revolver. And every Ranger was armed with two Colts. They were used to hearing the one shot go off, and then they all scramble to load, and then the next shot goes off. But imagine then hearing bang, bang, bang. Would have been incredibly powerful and something to be incredibly intimidated by. After several failed attempts at charging and overwhelming the outnumbered rangers, the Comanche broke and fled, dropping shields, lances, and bows. A Comanche chief said he would never fight the rangers again because they had a shot for every finger on their hands. On the ridge! Rifles! Then in 1846, the Mexican-American War breaks out after the constant border battles between Captain Samuel Walker and his Texas Rangers in the country of Mexico. For Walker and his men, the time it takes to reload a gun is often the difference between life and death. For every shot the Mexicans fire with their standard rifles, Walker's men can fire five. It's the beginning of a new era in warfare. Sam Walker began experimenting with how to use this. It's like, what do they got? What is this secret weapon? This is something we've never seen before. You don't have to have a single shot. You don't have to load the gun. Every time you fire, you've got something that you can load several rounds in. On November 30th, 1846, Captain Samuel Walker writes Samuel Colt a letter that will change the course of history. That letter reports how the Colt pistol changed the way he and his rangers fight. With a $25,000 U.S. government contract for a thousand pistols that Walker arranged, and with the design modifications that Walker suggested, a larger gun with six shots rather than five, Sam Colt re-entered the gun manufacturing business in 1847. The revolver went through the process of user influence, in influencing both design and also the practical use of the thing. They tinkered with this invention. Colt develops a 44 caliber, four pound, nine ounce revolver named the Walker after the man who made it happen. Increase the black powder by 60 grains. The barrel to nine inches. The Colt Walker is a much heavier gun, heavier caliber than Colt's original invention. But these Texas Rangers could handle that type of firearm. Many consider the Walker the mightiest handgun of its day, with firepower that won't be matched for 90 years until the release of the 357 Magnum. Colt's business soars, and the name Colt becomes synonymous with revolvers. Sam Colt created a brand around himself. And so what he was trying to establish there was that he was the guy, he was the brand. When you saw him, you thought success. But Colt's most revolutionary idea isn't in his new design. It's in how he puts it together. More than half a century before Henry Ford used mass production assembly lines in his automobile factories, 
Colt employed them to produce his revolvers in his enormous Hartford armory beginning in the 1850s. Using interchangeable parts, Colt's armory could turn out 150 weapons per day by 1856. The mass production allowed Colt to make his weapons more affordable to gun buyers, settling in the West. Colt's mass production achievement is only matched by the revolver's quality. Samuel Colt is an absolute perfectionist. Now, one of these guns is not up to Colt's standard. You choose. Wrong. It's this one. See the blemish? I don't allow any imperfections to leave my factory. Americans are also taken with the way in which this pistol of industrialization was itself like a small factory. It was a bullet-firing machine as opposed to a single-shot instrument. Once Colt perfected the system for mass-producing complex metal instruments like firearms, that system was readily adapted to make typewriters, sewing machines, and eventually bicycles, motorcycles, automobiles, cameras, you name it. In 1849, as the California Gold Rush begins, Colt develops the legendary 1840 pocket revolver, the single most successful pistol produced in his lifetime, with 325,000 sold by the time of his death. Most historians agree that the most serious mistake Colt makes is firing employee Roland White after he presented him with a patent on a new innovation. Powder and ball in the front, primer in the back. Reloading would be much faster. Up until this time, the shooter poured powder into each of the six-cylinder mouths, then push a bullet over the powder, and then load a percussion cap on the rear of the cylinder, making the reloading process cumbersome, to say the least. Roland White came up with this idea for a board-through cylinder that would allow you to load the firearm from the rear. It's not something Colt had. The fire from one shot will set off every chamber. It's dangerous. And when we come back, the rest of this remarkable story, Samuel Colt's story, the revolver's story here on Our American Stories.
And we return to the life of Samuel Colt and the birth of the revolver. And now the last installment of this story. With almost a complete monopoly on the revolver, Colt isn't ready to take a chance on something new. Here's Mitt Romney. My dad used to say, there's nothing as vulnerable as entrenched success. Sundance of an enterprise feels it has no real competition. It becomes complacent, and ultimately it can get wiped out by a small upstart that comes out with a better product. Fired by Colt, Roland White takes his groundbreaking idea to two men who intend to be Colt's biggest rivals, Horace Smith and Daniel Wesson. They jump at White's patent and gladly pay him a royalty. With this move, one of the most iconic names in gunmaking is born. Smith & Wesson. Samuel Colt built his business on the back of the Mexican-American War. Now was just a drop in the bucket compared to the impact of the gold rush and Western migration. Then, in the summer of 1856, Colt marries 29-year-old Elizabeth Hart, the daughter of a devoutly Christian and affluent Newport family. Take a seat. But as the 1850s draw to a close, the southern states begin arming themselves. How can I be of service? I'm here representing some gentlemen that are dedicated to a cause. Colt has been supplying arms to the U.S. military for years, but the military is about to be split in two. It's time for Samuel Colt to decide where his loyalties lie. When you're on the outbreak of war, there's a really difficult problem that arises from firearms manufacturers, and that is the balance between loyalty and being a good businessman. In this case, this is a war breaking out in the United States between the North and the South. This isn't America and the other guy. This is their home. In 1860, just one year before the Civil War begins, Colt sells the modern equivalent of more than $3 million worth of guns to the South. A risky move for a Northern businessman. Colt gets labeled a Southern sympathizer, and worse, a traitor. Sam Colt got into a lot of trouble on the eve of the Civil War because he also was believed to be arming the South. But in fact, Colt supplied arms to both sides before the war. After the war began, that stopped. the outbreak of the Civil War, Colt doubles the size of his armory and his factory is operating around the clock. But for Sam Colt, the success he craved and achieved would ironically contribute to his death. On January 10th, 1862, Samuel Colt dies of gout complications at the age of 47. By this time, Samuel Colt has made and sold one million guns. His 35-year-old widow, Elizabeth, is left in control of the company and a personal fortune of $15 million, the equivalent of over $300 million today. Elizabeth keeps the business running, even as the war wages on. 
After losing four children and a husband within five years, Elizabeth has begun to emerge from a year of mourning. Then, on February 5, 1864, Colt's armory bursts into flames and burns to the ground. Elizabeth stands at her window and watches her husband's vision go up in flames. Many believe Confederate sympathizers started the blaze. However, no one ever discovers the real cause. Elizabeth resolves to rebuild the armory while continuing wartime operations in an unburned wing of the building. Elizabeth Colt would also continue to innovate, eventually producing what would become the most famous Colt gun of them all, the Colt 45, also known as the Peacemaker, and what we know now as the gun that won the West. It is still in production to this very day. Here again is Dr. Roger McGrath. While much has been made of the 1873 Colt Peacemaker, and rightfully so, many of the famous gunmen of the Old West quickly replaced their single-action peacemakers with Colt's new double-action revolvers in 1877. Colt offered the new revolver in a 38 caliber, which was called the Lightning, and in a 41 caliber, which was christened the Thunderer. Among the many gunslingers who quickly adopted Colt's new revolver were Billy the Kid and John Wesley Harden. When the Civil War finally ends, America is transformed in countless ways, not least of which is gun ownership. Most of the soldiers come home with a prized possession. The Civil War really marks a turning point for firearms in American history with a revolver and with mass production really taking off. People were able to start buying revolvers. It's really the birth of a huge movement in America with firearms. People are still carrying the revolver because it's a reliable gun today. Colt transformed his products into icons, and his Colt revolvers became fixed in the American imagination as the very symbol of Western independence. The story of the Colt company after Colt family ownership continues to be one of innovation in weaponry. The Gatling gun, Browning rifles and machine guns, and the M16. During the 19th century, Samuel Colt did for pistols what fellow Connecticut native Eli Terry did for clocks. He made guns affordable for the average American. Couple that with the spread of armaments after the Civil War and what you have is an American inheritance passed on from the 19th to the 20th century. Anchored to the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, Americans in the 21st century have also inherited the notion that gun ownership is a normal, solidified, and self-evident aspect of American life. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg, and what a story the cult story is. And by the way, we've gotten 
Any number of business stories from the great book by Phil Anschutz, Out Where the West Begins. There's a part two, and we're going to be digging into some of those stories, too. And that's more of the cultural uh, effect of innovators there. Uh, But Out Where the West Begins, the first one, was about business leaders and how they impacted the growth of this country. And it's ignored in textbooks. It's ignored in schools. Uh, been of business innovators and how they've changed America. And we've done the, the Coors story, the Cyrus McCormick, J.P. Morgan, Andrew Carnegie. Other stories, by the way, that we've done right here on Our American Stories. Henry Ford's, Harley Davidson's, Steinway, the story of the piano makers in New York. Sam Walton, who changed retail forever. And Fred Smith, who had an idea when he was at Yale and in college that overnight delivery could happen. And he was the founder of FedEx. And told us here on this show that everything he learned, he learned when he was in the Marines. These business stories are stem winders. No one knows what's going to happen. And as we learn from the cult story, changed America as we know it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Story, Samuel Colt's story, the birth of the revolver, its story. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for the story of a song. We brought you There Goes My Life by Kenny Chesney, Light My Fire by The Doors, Give Me Shelter by The Rolling Stones, and many more. Go to ouramericannetwork.org, sign up for our podcasts. Hundreds and hundreds of hours of great American storytelling. And now, the story behind the song, The House of the Rising Sun. Here's Jesse. I was on assignment in New Orleans, walking towards Bourbon Street, when I heard a grisly voice yelling at me from across the street. Hey, you! Do you know where you're standing? A disheveled transient yelled. I was petrified. Rather than say anything, I simply shook my head with my mouth open, thinking I was about to get robbed or shanked or both. His words echoed down the street, sending a shiver up my spine. I looked up at the bright white three-story building gleaming in the morning sun. Could this be the place? I had completely forgotten it was here. It's almost as if it found me. Like many classic folk ballads, The House of the Rising Sun is of uncertain authorship. And it turns out that this is one of several possible locations for the legendary Bordello. The oldest published version of the lyrics is that printed by Robert Winslow Gordon in 1925 in a column titled Old Songs That Men Have Sung in Adventure Magazine. The oldest known recording of the song under the title Rising Sun Blues is by Appalachian artists Clarence Tom Ashley and Gwen Foster. 
who recorded it on September 6th of 1933. It's a song that's been covered from artists like Dolly Parton to Nina Simone, Waylon Jennings to Joan Baez. Bob Dylan liked the song so much that he recorded it on his first album in 1962. There is a house down in New Orleans. They call the rising sun. Now, the release had no songwriting credit, but the liner notes indicate that Dylan learned this version of the song from Dave Van Ronk. Here's Bob Dylan and Dave Van Ronk from the documentary No Direction Home. God, I'm a one. The House of the Rising Sun is on that record. Well, I'd never done that song before, but I heard it every night because Van Ronk would do it. So, you know, I thought he was really onto something with the song, so I just recorded it. Bobby picked up the chord changes for the song. For me, it really altered the song considerably, although the lyric was pretty much the straight House of the Rising Sun lyric, and so was the melody. And when he was doing, I guess it was his first album, he asked me if I would mind if, I, you know, if, if he recorded my version of House of the Rising Sun. And I had some plans to record it, so I said, well, gee, Bob, I'd rather you didn't because I'm going to record it myself soon. And Bobby said, uh-oh. The mystery of being in a recording studio did something to me, and those are the songs that came out. Now the only thing a gambler needs is a suitcase and a trunk. After he recorded it, I had to stop singing the song because people were constantly uh, accusing me of having got the song from Bobby's record. Now that was very, very annoying. But I couldn't blame that on him, and I, I didn't. The whole thing was a tempest in a teapot. Later on, when Eric Burden and the Animals picked the song up from Bobby and recorded it, Bobby told me that he had had to drop the song because everybody was accusing him of ripping it off from Eric Burden. <laughs> that version from the Animals was the most successful commercial version to date, recorded in 1964 in just one take. It was a number one hit in the UK, US, and France. Oh, mother, tell your children When Bob Dylan first heard the Animals version on his car radio, he stopped to listen, jumped out of the car, and began banging his fists on the hood. This was the sound that made Bob Dylan switch from an acoustic guitar to an electric. Yeah, put on the train. 
Various places in New Orleans have been proposed as the inspiration for the song with varying plausibility. The phrase House of the Rising Sun is often understood as a euphemism for a brothel, but it's not known whether or not the house described in the lyrics was an actual or a fictitious place. One theory is that the song is about a woman who killed her father, an alcoholic gambler, who had beaten his wife. Therefore, the House of the Rising Sun might be a jailhouse from which one would be the first to see the sunrise. An idea supported by the lyric mentioning a ball and chain, but that phrase has been slang for marital relationships for at least as long as the song has been in print. Because women often sang the song, another theory is that the House of the Rising Sun was where prostitutes were detained while treated for syphilis. Since cures with mercury were ineffective, going back was very unlikely. There are many places that could be the legendary House of the Rising Sun. One possible location was a small hotel in the French Quarter that burned down in 1822. Another possibility is the Rising Sun Hall, listed in the 19th century city directions, which no longer exist. And another possible location is here, at 826 St. Louis Street in the French Quarter. Between 1862 and 1874, and it was a house of ill repute, run by a Madame Marianne Lesolie Levant. Her surname means the rising sun in French. Here's the platters from 1965. And then there are some that say the building is just part of our imagination. A symbol of sin and misery in the house of the rising sun. Or to paraphrase Freud, sometimes lyrics are just lyrics. Here's Waylon Jennings. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. There is a house down in New They call the rising sun And it's been the ruin For many poor boy And me, oh God, I'm one My mother was a tailor She sewed these old blue jeans My father was a gambler 
gambling needs Is a suitcase and the trunk And the only time he's ever satisfied Is when he's on a drunk Let me call. 